Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation, deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Good morning. <laughs> it's so good to be together. My name is Jen Crow. I'm one of your ministers here at First Universalist Church, and it is a delight to be in this space, this place of beauty and legacy and generations, and to hear the choir warming up and singing today. Such a gift to my spirit. So thank you. First Universalist Church is a community of many generations. We have existed for over 160 years, and we ground ourselves in the spiritual practices of giving, receiving, and growing. We do this by welcoming, affirming, and protecting the light in each and every human heart, by listening deeply to where love is calling us next, and by acting with humility and compassion and courage in service of justice in the world. We do all of this as a faith community committed to dismantling white supremacy culture and ending oppression in all of its forms so that we might create beloved community and a place of shared liberation, freedom, and joy. This is who we are. This is the life we invite you into when you journey with us, and we are so glad that you all are here. We hope you'll learn more about our community and ways to be involved by checking out our website and our weekly newsletter. If you're new this morning, a special welcome to you. We invite you to attend First Step right after the service at 1130. Facilitated by longtime church members, First Step is a 30 to 40 minute drop-in gathering where we invite you to tell us a bit about who you are and where you can learn about Unitarian Universalism and our congregation in particular. The Zoom link to First Step can be found on our website and in today's order of service. Also, if you're new, you're invited to join us for a newcomer's circle that starts at the end of October. This is if you're new to First Universalist and want to journey with us and learn a bit more about this spiritual home. So a special shout out to everybody who's making the service happen this morning. So thank you to everyone who's serving as ushers and greeters and who are welcoming our tech crew, our worship leaders, our choir. Thank you for bringing this experience of beauty and connection for all of us. And if you are looking for ways to help the church live into its values of expansive welcome, we need you. And maybe you want a sneak peek at the sanctuary before it's fully reopened to everybody. How do you do that? You become a, a greeter or an usher. 
amazing, become a greeter or an usher for the next few weeks and into the future. And you will not only get to welcome people in, which is our spiritual practice of hospitality, but you will also get to be here in the space and be a part of worship in person, even if you don't have older youth in RE. So please join us. Also, we are looking for uh, help with some upcoming memorial services, another opportunity to do the work of the church, which is caring for each other, especially in times of need and in times of grief. So we have two memorial services coming up in the next few weeks. Please be in touch with Janet Merrill if you can be of assistance. We have one especially coming up this week on Thursday. So now as we prepare our hearts and minds and spirits for this time of worship together, let's turn our attention to this particular time and place. We acknowledge that we gather this morning on the historic homeland of the Dakota and Anishinaabe people. We lift up their memory. We remember their historic and continued resistance to oppression, their care for each other in this land, and we acknowledge too their continued presence in our communities today. May we remember the history that we share. May it compel us to create a world of justice and liberation for us all. With all of this in our heart, Let's breathe as we are comfortable doing so. Breathing in, breathing out, arriving in this time and place as we light our chalice together. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love and to help one another.
Good morning. I'm Lauren Wyeth, your Director of Children, Youth, and Family Ministries. And that song sung by our choir is a favorite of our youth. This morning, I have a story to share with you, a story about a religious education class, also known as an RE class here at church, that had a particular way of gathering. Each Sunday, everyone would come together by sitting in a circle and talking until it was time for the class to start. Some of the kids really liked this way of starting a lot. They were generally people who were pretty outgoing and talkative, and sitting and chatting was like their favorite thing. Some of the kids didn't like this way of starting at all. They were people who generally might be more quiet, who didn't want to be forced to talk in a large group, and people who generally might be more loud, who preferred more excitement and moving around. But that's the way their time together always started. Come in, sit, chat, wait. Until one morning, there was a kid standing out in the hallway instead of coming in. So one of the teachers went out to check on them. And they discovered that this kid felt uncomfortable coming in because they felt like they were interrupting the conversation and everyone was staring at them. So the teacher suggested that the class talk about this and come up with a solution. The kid felt shy, but agreed. Well, the other kids were great. Several of them admitted that they also felt awkward coming into class. The discussion was animated and creative, and in the end, they landed on a solution. Instead of sitting in a circle waiting for class to start, they'd spend the time before class playing games, like Simon Says and Red Light, Green Light. And they tried it out the next week, and lots of kids had fun. So that became their new way of starting. But one Sunday morning, just a few weeks later, there was a different kid lingering out in the hallway. A teacher went out to check on them, and they discovered that this kid was really noise sensitive, and the classroom was way too loud and chaotic, and they did not want to come in. So the teacher suggested that they ask the class to talk about this problem and come up with another solution. And the kid agreed even though they were pretty sure no one would understand how they felt. But the class understood. And it turned out there was another kid who was also feeling overwhelmed by the active games. They were wishing it would just go back to how it had been before with a circle and conversation to start the morning. Well, now the class had a seemingly unsolvable problem. How could the classroom be calm and welcoming for some of them and active and fun and welcoming for the others. At the same time, they were stumped. Until one kid pulled something out of their backpack. It was a set of headphones, and not just any headphones. These were noise-canceling headphones, the kid explained. They used them when they needed a little bit of quiet in a place that was kind of too loud. The rest of the class was really excited about this. What if, they said, what if there was a corner of the classroom that was like the calm corner and there was a bunch of noise-canceling headphones there? 
And kids could go there if they wanted quiet at the beginning of the class, or they could chill there any time they wanted. Kids who wanted to play games could play games. Kids who wanted quiet could have quiet. They're pretty sure they had found a perfect plan. But then someone made it even better. They suggested, what if there was also one table with colored pencils and paper for kids who want to sit and chat and color? So that was unanimously added to the plan. They all agreed. They'd try it out. But they also agreed that if someone new joined their class who wasn't into any of these options, they could always figure out more ways of starting their time together. And their plan worked beautifully. One thing they discovered after a while was that everyone found themselves choosing different activities and options than they expected sometimes. A kid who was generally pretty rambunctious came to church one week feeling kind of sad about a friend being sick, and they were grateful for that quiet corner. And two kids who usually chose to read in the quiet corner sometimes found themselves coloring and chatting with one another. And later in the year, a new kid joined the class who loved making origami. So the coloring table became a place to fold tiny square pieces of paper into intricate shapes or to color. Those kids learned a lot of different things in their religious education curriculum that year. And so did their teachers, and so did I. Because they had believed it was possible, maybe the most important thing we learned together was that the best way was not the same for everyone, but it was a way that worked for everyone. making room for each and all of us, whether we're here in the sanctuary or wherever we are in time and space. We take time to prepare our hearts and our minds and our bodies for a time of prayer and meditation in all of the ways that work for us. For some of us, that's through movement. For others, through stillness, through breathing in and breathing out, perhaps by paying attention to one small thing. For others, perhaps by grounding ourselves through attention to all of our senses. Perhaps it's what we feel in our bodies. Maybe it's our feet on the floor, our bodies in the pews, our bodies wherever they are. Maybe it's through a sight or a smell or a sound. Together in all the ways that work for each of us, we come together ready and in need of prayer and meditation.
we gather grateful for this time and space for a place to lay our burdens down and know ourselves held in the care of this community, for breath that animates our bodies and movement in whatever way makes us feel alive, for a community that provokes us into action, sometimes beyond words, for beauty and wonder and creativity that carries and inspires us for relationships with longtime friends and never met neighbors here in the pews and online that somehow, some way, hold the heartbreak and joy of life with us. For all of this and so much more, we gather grateful as the cycle of life turns for us all. Our hearts are with Karen Wills and her daughter Emma as they prepare for husband and father Steve Gurch's memorial service this Thursday, October 7th at 11 a.m. here in the sanctuary. All are welcome to attend, and the family asks that all who do attend be vaccinated. An online option is also available. Today we also remember the promises broken and the treaties dishonored as Line 3 went live this week in Minnesota for the water protectors, for all of us who mourn this decision and its impacts, we pause to grieve and we remember we are always one in a long line of resistance, creating change that comes from action beyond a singular moment, but through a movement we sustain over time. And we share in the joys and sorrows and gratitudes of this community grateful for being back in this beautiful space, celebrating the thousands and thousands who marched together in solidarity in yesterday's Women's March for Reproductive Freedom, celebration of my niece Emily setting off on a year of travel on her sabbatical from first grade teaching. She's taking an acorn with her from First Universalist grateful to get to take care of our grandkids last weekend, holding my children who are struggling with mental health challenges, grateful to be back in this church. We know that we are carrying so much together and that together we can hold it all. And together we pray that the grip of addiction be loosened, that the weight of oppression be lightened, that grief be shared, that truth be told, that joy might break through, and that love might make every suffering bearable for us all. Amen. Let's join together in singing prayer, Spirit of Life.
Thank you. Thank you, choir. Um, you all might remember early in the pandemic when this was new to all of us. This, this, you know, the camera and all that. Um, I have a confession to make. You all might recall that many of us saw videos of um, online worship mishaps from other congregations, and some of us got a little chuckle about them. My confession is that I was awfully prideful at that time, thinking, oh, that won't happen here. I am truly sorry that I had those thoughts. I am truly sorry for what I have brought onto us. We're having a little uh, camera hiccup here and there, um, but I think we're doing okay now. So friends, you know on Sesame Street, when they say that this episode was brought to you by the numbers 9, 13, and 3, and the letter K? You all know what I'm talking about, right? Um, I was thinking about that this week, and so I want to start by acknowledging that, that this particular homily didn't spring out of my mind or heart fully formed and was, in fact, very much the result of and inspired by conversations with my wife Channing and my colleagues Julica and Glenn Thomas this week. So thank you to them for, for inspiring this. What I should really say is that anything about this homily that you appreciate is owed to them and anything that you don't is my fault. 20 June, 1899. Dear Mr. Walter Arnold, I hope that this letter finds you well. I'm writing about a most urgent matter concerning your speeding ticket, which you received on 28 January 1896. I am outraged that your municipal authorities would have the temerity to fine you for exceeding their exceedingly low speed limit of two miles per hour. Free societies like ours rely on the ethical and judicious behavior of its citizens, not on the tyrannical overreach of our governments. It reeks of monarchy. Apologies, of course, to your monarch. I wonder, now that the matter of your ticket is behind you, how you approached the legal matter, being the first person issued a speeding ticket in your country. I make this particular inquiry because I now have the pleasure of having earned the same notoriety in my country after being issued a speeding ticket on 20 May of this year, 1899. I was traveling down Lexington Avenue in New York, a long, smooth, and very straight road which is downhill for a sizable portion and therefore lends itself to building up a not inconsiderable velocity. Anyway, the specifics matter little. What matters is the injustice and abrogation of my rights. I would greatly appreciate any insights into the legal stratagems you deployed to rid yourself of the stain on your character and perhaps a precedent of jurisprudence that would alter future efforts to legislate the operation of automobiles. Sincerely yours, Jacob German. 12 July, 1899. Dear Jacob, 
Thank you for your letter dated 20 June 1899. In response to your inquiry, I paid the fine and let the matter rest and suggest you do the same. As a purveyor of automobiles, I have a vested interest in our fellow men knowing that cars are safe and regulations help to provide that sense of safety. What you view as intrusive overreach, I accept as the price of living in the society of other men and commend you to do the same. Remember that it is the society of men who made possible such wonders as the very automobiles whose operation we were ticketed for. I will gladly follow a few necessary laws if it means I can, employ the the, I can enjoy the comforts of civilized society and more so encourage more people to purchase my cars. Yours in transit, Walter Arnold. Over the last week, I have been imagining what these two would say to each other if they had the chance to talk. These two men who were the first in America and England to receive speeding tickets. And while these letters are most certainly not what they have, would have said to each other, it's fun to imagine their conversation. Speed limits. Speed limits are something that most of us probably don't think about much. We learn about them when we're learning to drive, and that's about it. You follow them, and if you don't, there's a chance you'll get a ticket. Like most things in our world, speed limits are actually a whole lot more interesting than they might appear on the surface. So please indulge me a bit as we take a little detour into history. I promise it's useful. Anyone have a guess as to when the first speed limits were created? This is gonna be a multiple choice question that we're gonna do, I believe, with a poll and uh, sort of a show of hands in the sanctuary. So uh, two things about this. Put your devices away, you online, no Googling ahead of time. Uh, the webcam is playing games. It's deciding to turn itself off periodically. Really, I am sorry for what I brought on to us. All right, so multiple choice. When were the first speed limits created? Option one, before cars were invented. Option two, about the same time as cars were invented. Option three, sometime after cars were invented. Let's look at each of these and then we'll take our poll. Don't cheat and Google it. So those of you who are leaning toward the uh, idea that they were invented after are thinking that cars were a new and novel invention and as such there was a learning period between the time that they were developed and the time communities realized that some form of regulation was necessary to keep people safe that makes sense right we develop a thing and then it takes us a while to really understand it kind of like cell phones maybe or pesticides things like that okay so that's one answer after cars. Speed limits were developed after cars. Those of you thinking that they were developed at about the same time are perhaps operating on the idea that cars were pretty much instantly recognized as a menace to the prevailing foot and horse traffic of the time. And from a desire to protect people, speed limits were introduced about the same time as the mass production of cars, but also, also, so that more people would take advantage of this new and advanced way of moving around. Speed limits in some sense told folks, hey, these things are safe, go for it. They're regulated, surely they're safe. 
And those of you leaning on the before cars answer are maybe thinking that we humans had the foresight to say that these horseless carriage things that people are trying to invent are dangerous. Let's regulate them before they can dominate the landscape and ruin everything. You're thinking on some level that we humans had an awareness of the need to protect the commons from threats that were on the horizon but not yet fully realized. We saw this threat coming and tried to get in front of it. So those are your options. Uh, online, there is a poll that's up right now. Please go ahead and uh, vote if you haven't already. And here in the sanctuary, let's do a show of hands. So hang on, let me grab a pen. So uh, how many people think it is before the invention of cars? All right, so that's before the invention of cars. Um, you all can help me count. Um, what about uh, about the same time as? Who thinks it's about the same time as? Okay, that's a super unpopular option here. And what about after the invention of cars? Oh, that looks pretty evenly split to me. You think definitely more on after. Okay, so here in the sanctuary, the overwhelming majority, is that a plurality? The overwhelming majority <laughs> is voting for after. And we as a congregation are delightfully consistent. It looks like online. 54% uh, voted after the invention of cars. So let me close this and get it out of the way. Yay, we, we agree. So let me tell you what the answer is. I feel a little bit like I'm on wait, wait, don't tell me. <laughs> and here's Arif to tell us about it. So the folks who picked the first option before cars were invented are correct. In fact, it turns out that speed limits existed long before cars were invented, by over 100 years, if you can believe it. There's a, there's a little happy dance going on for some, for some of you in the sanctuary. I love it. I love it. Um, it turns out, yeah, check this out. It turns out that from the earliest moments of our collective existence and regular use of vehicles like carriages and carts and sleighs, we recognized the need to regulate safe operation of vehicles. Isn't that wild? Right about now, you might be thinking, all right, Rev, why are we talking about speed limits? Remember when I said speed limits are a lot more interesting than they might appear on, on, on the surface? Let's go back to that, hang on to that, right? So you've got this little factoid in mind that from the very earliest regulations existed that were meant to ensure safety when operating all kinds of vehicles. We went back in history now let's go another direction. Imagine that you are uh, uh, an alien from outer space. You are ET visiting this planet. You're cruising around the cities. You're checking out the sites in your spaceship and you see that the land is covered by these large strips of artificial material that is a grayish or black color. They have stripes painted on them. They have these little boxes that travel on them, usually piloted by a single individual. And you notice that there appear to be rules that govern how these boxes move large red octagonal signs, lights in red, green, and yellow, arrows of all sorts, and signs, these, these white upright rectangles with numbers on them. 
And in some places, the numbers are smaller. In other places, the numbers are larger. And your translation computer tells you that those are speed limit signs. But you are confused. You are confused because even though the speed limit signs have numbers on them, the pilots of the smaller boxes seem to have a rather arbitrary relationship to the numbers. <laughs> Based on your ship's tracking systems, the pilots rarely, if ever, pilot their craft at exactly the velocity indicated by those signs. And even more confusing, the degree of deviance from the posted limit seems to vary based on time of day and where on a particular stretch of street those pilots happen to be. What is going on here? You, as E.T., or even you as yourself might ask, why don't people follow the rules that they themselves created? I mean, at least collectively, if not individually, this is our doing. Our doing in order to keep both the individual and the collective safe. I mean, sure, this is a question about why we speed. Because everyone in the room follows the speed limit precisely, right? Right. But it's also a question about why people do things like smoke cigarettes or drink alcohol or do any of the things that our society has decided require some form of cautionary regulation or guideline. What is going on here? Let's think about risk. Let's think about control. Let's think about the individual. Let's think about the collective. I'm inviting you to track these tensions with me. Once upon a time, a long time ago, not in a galaxy far, far away, but right here, humans gained the ability to move at faster velocities and to do so with and around other people. In other words, a novel risk was discovered where one had not existed previously. Over time, humans gained an understanding of the risks involved in piloting vehicles and introduced regulation and social conventions that helped us to mitigate that risk. They didn't eliminate the risk entirely, far from it, but rather they established legal and cultural norms that pointed societies toward what behavior was acceptable and helped to create a reasonable level of safety and what behavior was unacceptable because it introduced more risk than the society was willing to tolerate. In other words, a balance was found somewhere between zero risk, which we know to be impossible, and guaranteed injury or death, which we assume to be unacceptable. Somewhere in between is where our societies have decided to hang out. And similarly, on this multi-dimensional graph also exists that balance between collective good and individual autonomy. Our ideas of government and market require that we believe in and create systems that perpetuate the notion of separate and rational individuals who make the best decisions for themselves with available information. Every structural and cultural move we make can be mapped onto those axes too, within a defined field of choices, to speed or not to speed, to stay on the road or not to stay, how much freedom is the individual actor granted, and how much choice is constrained by the collective good? The parallels to what we are grappling with today 
are likely pretty obvious. Sometime in 2019, a novel risk was discovered in the form of a new coronavirus that our species had previously not encountered. The last 18 months of our lives have been deeply marked by this experience. For many of us, this has been, this will be one of the most defining experiences of our lives. And for humanity, what is becoming abundantly clear is that we will be living with this coronavirus for some time, probably for the rest of our lives. This virus may well result in long-term changes to how human beings live our lives and interact with each other. And so the speed limit parallels are interesting, as are other parallels to how humanity encountered a novel threat and found a way to make peace with it. Now, unlike cars, COVID-19 seems to offer no benefit whatsoever. It doesn't get us anywhere faster. We can't use it to haul stuff. Really, it is pretty useless to us. But it's here. It is here. It is a new threat. And we now get to learn how to live with it. And for me, this is where I look back to Julika's invitation last week. And honestly, I get a little worried for us all. As my colleague, Dr. Glenn Thomas, put it earlier this week, human beings under stress don't do so well when it comes to assessing what's in front of us and making decisions on how to move forward. We get binary, thinking in either or good, bad, us, them terms, and we get a lot less creative. Our reptilian brains take over and suddenly we greet the whole world with a simple question, is it food for me or am I food for it? And folks, we are under stress right now. When I look around and see the swirling debates about how we can learn to live with COVID-19, I have to say that I see a lot of thinking that looks like it's coming out of our reptilian brains, starting with my own. I desperately want one clear, single, clear-cut answer, one recipe for living safely in the world. I wonder if you see this in yourselves, sometimes maybe. On my better days, I know that we're not quite there yet. Science is powerful, but so too is what we don't know and what we don't know that we don't know. On the scale of God, the universe, and everything, we have not lived with this virus all that long. We are just getting to know each other, really. So I get a little nervous when I see myself stridently picking a side because if I'm honest, there is a lot that I don't know and even more that I don't know that I don't know. And as much as I want to believe that I am operating out of rationality and logic, my 4 a.m. thoughts know that it is mostly fear and a longing to not need to worry about how I live and move through the world. Maybe this resonates for you too. I most certainly don't have any answers. But as the poet and hip-hop artist Guante says, I won't let you ask the questions alone. We can't ask or answer these alone. We are right there in the middle of that multi-dimensional grid where risk and safety, collective and individual, are in dynamic tension. And the choices that we make right now are going to reverberate through the rest of our lives. 
these are big and important times. The stakes really are high. And so what I'm asking is that we slow down, that we help each other find the heart space to create enough safety that our reptilian brains can relax a little. If that means helping with food or rent or supporting someone and finding a job, if it means sharing stories and holding hands and burying our dead, if it means investing in the technology and materials so that more people can find themselves in the center of our circle, let's check in and ask, what do I need to feel a little more safe, a little less activated, a little less in the ethic of control? And then let's help each other to get what we need. In other words, let's find ways, together and on our own, to get into a slower and more centered presence. Let's think from that place about the big choices in front of us. And I'm not suggesting that this is a long or a drawn out process. We don't have time for that. Just a simple pause a breath or three, as Reverend Jen has been teaching us for the last 18 months, a hand on the stomach, gentling our core like we would a baby's back, saying that it's all right. It's all right. We can be scared and creative at the same time. We can be uncertain and listen to more perspectives at the same time. We can together be that which holds all, or at least which holds more. May it be so, and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.